Hello there guys, what is going on? Daniel Childs back here again for another podcast, another show. It is a special show today. Uh, we have got a brilliant guest on to speak about Chelsea. Although we are at kind of a calm period, can you believe it, over the past year in terms of Chelsea history? But this is going to be exciting, a good conversation today. Before we do get into that conversation and welcome the guest to the show, make sure to hit that subscribe button, make sure to hit the notification bell so you don't miss any of the uploads on the channel. And if you're listening on a podcast feed, thank you so much for tuning in. Son of Chelsea is a part of the 90 Min podcast network. Uh, but let's introduce the guest. This is someone I've wanted to have on a channel for a number of years. I think a brilliant reporter, someone whose work I do reference a lot on my show, and that is Liam Toomey of The Athletic. Liam, how you doing, mate? Great to finally have you on uh, the Side of Chelsea podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here. I'm sorry it's taken us so long to make this happen. It's I'm pretty sure it's been my fault. I've been quite hard to pin down. But um, yeah, doing well generally. Fi- very disconcerted by the fact that we've gone several days now without Chelsea either playing a match or signing a, a multi-million pound footballer, but I'm sure that will change. Yeah, Chelsea do not allow you, and, and you probably know this more than anyone else, Chelsea do not allow you to relax for that long. So you've got to savour these moments, Liam. Like These are, these are precious times uh, where Chelsea aren't doing anything mad. But it's interesting, you've, obviously you've released a couple of pieces this week for the athletic that i definitely suggest people go and read uh one of them that sparked my interest and i think you know references the first thing to sort of speak about here is is regarding who chelsea have signed in january in particular in attack uh noddy manawake of course it was what was a friday night i think the deal was confirmed uh by chelsea um from psv and, and you it was one of those sort of classic athletic pieces you know deep dive into his career data y scout all that good stuff link in the description box below for people to go and read it but i sort of want to ask you about this stra- this january strategy to pursue these wide players uh in, in the case of mudrick as well because i don't think many of us especially from i, I guess my perspective and people i spoke to before january of if you would have said what are going to be the priority areas for chelsea i don't think two wingers were going to be on that list. Um, but I, in the case of, I think, both of these players, they have sparked excitement and, and intrigue from fans. Yeah, I think we we can't describe it as 100% strategy. <laughs> I think, it, especially when you're talking about January, it's at best, it's a combination of strategy and opportunism because ja- the January market is about the deals you ca- you can get done practically as much as the players that you would ideally want. Um, and we've seen that, I think, in in some other positions that Chelsea are looking at. They're clearly highly motivated to sign a central midfielder, but you're getting quoted prices like Enzo Fernandez's release clause or, you know, 80 million plus for Moises Caicedo. You know, these these are the kind of fees that you get, get touted routinely in January because they're generally... Um, designed to try and deter deter interest rather than attract it because clubs don't want to sell their best players mid-season. So I think a lot of this has been motivated by what Chelsea can do um, rather than exactly what they want to do. And that that comes into the midrick as well, I think, because we were told for a couple of weeks that Chelsea were watching Arsenal's attempts to sign midrick, that they weren't necessarily pushing um, but they were interested in the player and they were waiting to see whether Arsenal would um, would just you know tick every box that Shakhtar were looking for or whether a window of opportunity would open. 
And as it was, a window of opportunity opened because our Arsenal, I think, were were trying to negotiate quite hard with Shakhtar. Um, and so they went and did that deal. And, and, and Shakhtar were also motivated sellers, which I think PSV also are, if you look at what they did with Cody Gakpo this this window as well. They, they clearly need to raise money. Um, and Chelsea offered them a fee that I think no one else was prepared to for, for Madueki in, in this window. So I don't know if they always intended to bring in two high-profile first-team wingers um, in this January, but the opportunity arose for them to sign two players that they really like. And they went and got it done. And, and, and that means that there are other areas of the squad, which I'm sure we'll get onto, that still need to be addressed. But I think they feel like they've signed two quality players in a position that still needed to be addressed at some point. Yeah, I, I sort of, I've been losing count of how many players Chelsea have actually signed this window. You know, usually are quite squeamish in terms of spending vast amounts, as you've said, because it is about opportunity. You know, sometimes that opportunity is an Olivier Giroud. I think that's one of the best ones we've done in recent years where you bring in a player at a certain time and they offer value over a number of years. That's kind of what you're hoping in this period. And of course, you forget about the, the expensive loan for Joao Felix within there as well. And, and we've barely seen any of him because he decided to two-foot someone. But, I, I you know, it's it's going to be curious to see what happens as we'll get to. We're also, you know, we'll talk about the transfer deadline day. But um, another one of those names is Mikhailo Madrid. And, you know, we all saw his debut. You, you saw his debut at what I'm informed was a very cold Anfield and it wasn't a great game. But I think he was, he was, the, he was kind of the star of it. I mean, it, it feels like a provocative question, uh, but will Madrid turn out to be the most important addition this new ownership has made, at least in the first season? Yeah, I mean, I, I I try and steer clear of hyperbole where I can um, in this job because I've I've seen enough times that first impressions are not always accurate in terms of what a player will give you over time. I remember Alvaro Morata having one of the most spectacular debuts. I can remember going to Stoke and scoring a hat trick at the Britannia in it and thinking, "Wow, Chelsea have got a proper superstar number nine, and we all know where that ended up. Um, but sometimes the talent jumps out at you in, in, a, in a real way. And I think that's what happened when Madrid came on at Anfield. There were lots of reasons why he shouldn't have been able to do what he did in that game. That you know, he hadn't played a competitive minute since November. He'd barely trained with his new teammates, new league, new football culture. Coming up against a very difficult team, albeit Liverpool have plenty of problems of their own right now, of course. In a difficult stadium, you know, a hostile atmosphere, and I'm not sure if this came through to everyone watching, but there was a really high wind. I know Jurgen Klopp's spoken about the wind in English football before, but it it was a problem in the game, I think. Um, so there were lots of reasons why he should have had a pretty forgettable and maybe quite difficult debut, but he immediately looked like the most dangerous attacker on the pitch, and this was a, a pitch that had Mohamed Salah on it. Um, I think he, he he adjusted to the intensity of the game and the speed of the game really, really quickly. It helped maybe that he was up against the 37-year-old at right back for, for a little while when he came on. But you could see the speed. I think more, more encouragingly for Chelsea, because they, they knew they were getting the speed with Madrid, more encouragingly, I think you saw a real intelligence in tight spaces, um, a really, really good decision-making, a natural awareness of where his teammates were an ability to not just 
you know, play the obvious forward pass, but the clever forward pass that isn't so obvious that sets up a shot. Um, and 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 there was of course that real you know flashbulb moment where he he passes the ball to Gallagher, gets the gets the loose ball back off him, and that wonderful really lightning shimmy to go round Joe Gomez. And it's a shame he couldn't finish it off because it would have been an absolutely brilliant goal and a, a very good introduction to what I think Madrid can be at Chelsea. Um, you know he's. He's got that level of talent to be a real sort of game-changing winger in this league. And I, I, I'm, I'm very encouraged, I think, that he that he showed that on his debut, given the circumstances. And I, I don't see any reason why, as he gains more familiarity with his new surroundings and his new teammates, that we can't see more of it and that he can't get even better. I do think there is a slight concern for me, as you've mentioned, of you know, those early impressions and coming off the bench and the game being a little bit dead and, you know, and then you you sort of contrast that with, as you've rightly pointed out, the environment, the pressure, the stadium, the expectation. Uh, but, you know, you look at Lukaku's impact at the Emirates um, and his early weeks at Chelsea where it looked like this is it, you know, Chelsea finally signed a striker and the more he became used to his surroundings and the players, he seemed to get worse. He seemed to... and. I think you could even argue that Raheem Sterling, Marco Correa, Kaladu Koulibaly have, have, for different reasons, I think those are all, all those players, I'm, I think we could say there's different situations and different variables of any player. But I, my concern with Mudrik, with Jao Felix is, are they going to be dragged down? Because I, you know, I, I, I do wonder if our excitement over Mudrik is, we haven't seen someone do that at Chelsea that excitement, that raw maverick player. I mean, I, that's is that a concern for you? Because it's just like, did we see something really encouraging or is it just we've been starved of attacking expression for so long at Stamford Bridge? Well, I, I, I do get that. And I think there were there were shades of the reaction to Mudrick's debut in Jao Felix's debut against Fulham, wasn't there, earlier this month, where for an hour, all I was seeing on, on Twitter and, and you, you got it from the occasional oohs and ahs from the Chelsea away fans as well was, wow, there's, there's a Chelsea attacker that's just not afraid to try things and has the ability to pull them off and is, is sort of playing decisively on instinct. And, and even though he wasn't scoring, he was a constant threat. And I think you got a similar, a similar feeling from Mudrick watching him. Yeah, there are reasons to be cautious. I mean, I said before the game that I felt in some ways, you know, with the difficulties to one side, Liverpool could be an ideal debut opponent for someone like Madrid because they play high up the pitch. They do give you space. At that time, I thought they were going to start Trent at right back rather than Milner. But either way, you've got someone that you can attack and, and get joy out of 1v1. It, a lot In a lot of weeks, as we know, Chelsea are going to be facing very disciplined, very organised low blocks and teams determined to try and stop Chelsea doing what they want to do and, and then counter-attacking them. That's something Mudrik's going to have to learn to deal with because he played a lot in transition at Shakhtar. That was their deliberate game plan to maximise him. Chelsea do get transition opportunities and I think they, you know, a key part of Mudrik's success will be them finding ways to find him faster in those situations. That was part of my Mudrik piece. Was I think a lot of Chelsea players aren't wired to find the quick forward pass at the moment that, and that's not because they can't, it's just because they're not necessarily attuned to looking for it. It's not the way they've been playing the last few years. Um, but the other thing that really encouraged me, I, I felt about Mudrik's debut was 
what I said before, how good he was in tight spaces at finding passes and the fact that he showed the ability to beat players in small spaces as opposed to big distances. And I think he's going to need both. If you're going to be a game-changing winger at Premier League level in a top team, you know, Mo Salah has that. You look at um, someone like Riyad Mahrez who's playing out of his mind at the moment. He's got the ability to do that. Um, you look back in Chelsea history, Eden Hazard had the ability to be a force in transition, but also to break teams down when they were in a low block. And Mudrick flashed ability to to grow into a player that can do both. And I think that that's got, if he can do that, then I don't see why he can't be a big success. Yeah, you do need, it's not just about the system and the players around him. I think you also do need um, that player, as you say, that's going to make a difference. It's going to take things up a, a few gears, especially as as we know at Stamford Bridge, on like a 3pm when you've got a low block. Um, and as we saw with Timo Werner, when that space was not there to just hit the ball to him to run onto, like he had it in the Bundesliga. And that's the thing I think Christopher Nkunku is probably going to have to adapt to as well. Although I do think Nkunku is a, is a more technically gifted player, but it's it's a massive uh, transition, as we know. Let's talk about transfer deadline day. Um, I I was uh, on a live stream last night, and I was sort of looking at the targets. And I, you know, at the moment, I'm more confident that Malo Gusto from Leon is the one that I, I can see getting done because it seems like that's the one with. I mean, maybe you could tell me differently. Feels like the, the least complications. Chelsea aren't going to have to spend over a hundred million to get. There's no like massive release clause here. Um, but there is also that midfielder thing that I think a lot of us have been crying out for for years and years at this point. It feels like most of the time I've been doing this channel, I've wanted to see Chelsea sign a, a central midfielder. Let's start with Enzo Fernandez. I mean, I, I know there was some hope earlier in the week that things have been rekindled, but Benfica's public stance isn't changing. And I mean, it's such a massive commitment for Chelsea's owners to say, here you go, here's over 100 million for a player who, being fair all the hype around, has only had six months, is it, of European football? Yeah, I mean, my feeling on on the Enzo deal hasn't really changed in the last few weeks since it all, since talks initially broke down, is that there's, I can't see any way that Chelsea agreed to pay the buyout clause. I would be I'd be stunned because it has to be accounted for all at once. And I, that just doesn't fit with everything else that Chelsea have been doing with the long contracts, the amortisation. It doesn't fit with the strategy. I'm not even sure if it's mathematically possible for them to stay FFP compliant doing a deal like that. Um, so the, the only option you could imagine that Benfica might accept is if Chelsea pay over the clause in instalments. Um, but even then there appeared to be disagreements over what that structure should look like. And fundamentally Benfica do not need to sell. This is why they're asking this much for Enzo because they signed him for what a pittance um, six months ago from, from South America He's had an amazing ride to international prominence with everything that he's done for them in the Champions League group stage and then for Argentina at the World Cup. And they've got real things to play for in the second half of the season. They can win the Portuguese league, they're top at the moment. And they're in the Champions League round of 16. They topped a group that had Juventus and PSG in it. So they know that they're a good team this, this season. And they've got a very winnable round of 16 tie. I think it's against Genk. Or, uh, you know, it's not against the European heavyweight anyway. Yeah. So if you're, ben, if you're looking at this from Benfica's point of view, you're thinking we've banked 
a ton of money from Liverpool over the last two years for Diaz and Nunes. We don't need this. We don't need the distraction of it. We don't need to remodel our midfield mid-season. And, and, and if Enzo is as good as you know, people believe that he is, um, he's going to be pretty hard for them to replace. And Benfica are used to replacing players and refreshing their team, but I, think, I don't think they want to do it mid-season. And that's why this is a difficult, a really difficult negotiation for Chelsea. And when you add on top of that, um, the public anger that we saw earlier this month from Holger Schmidt and, and, and other people at Benfica. Um, some of that will be posturing, but some of that will be an added complication to all of this. When he came out and said that earlier, it reminded me a little bit of last year when Tuchel came out and very publicly talked about the Christensen contract situation. And, um, you know, colleague and mutual friend, I think, uh, Adam Newson, I remember us talking about it at the time being like, Rarely did took all such a was such a politically savvy Chelsea manager in those situations that he ain't going to talk so publicly and strongly about a contract negotiation if there isn't some kind of at least confidence that that maybe is the feeling behind the scenes when you see a coach particularly one of Tuchel's stature and in the case of Benfica says that so publicly with all these negotiations going on and you know if you're doing that you're potentially jeopardizing over a hundred million. Uh, for a club you know and even though there's there's that side which is we don't want to sell in January but it also is the case of is this the height of Enzo Fernandez's value as a player you know does he get injured does his form completely tail off um, but I, I agree I, I, I find it very unlikely I mean the other midfield option is is also a thing that's going to you know probably cause Chelsea a high bargain because Brighton know that Chelsea uh, can pay them a lot of money is uh, Moises Casado. I, I think the Athletic reporting last week around 55 million bid. Um, I was speaking to a Brighton fan yesterday who is kind of thinks 100 million or nothing effectively. I mean, this is another one where Chelsea are kind of in a bad place negotiation-wise, right? I mean, they're going to have to spend over the odds for this player. Certainly in this window, um, I, th- I think there's... The, the direction of travel seems to be towards Caicedo leaving Brighton in the summer, one way or another. He's just changed his agent. So there, there does seem to be a conscious um, move towards getting him out of Brighton um, more in the next window than this one. But in this one, Brighton hold all the cards. You know, he's, he's under contract. Again, they don't need money. They've got plenty of Chelsea money sitting in the bank accounts already. Um, and that the price they got for Mark Correa is looking very, very good right now. Um, we're holding out for the Levi Cobble tax, Liam. That's that's what we're holding yeah. out for at this point. <laughs> yeah, what a badly timed injury for him, by the way. He's doing so well. Um, but yeah, I think they're just in a really strong position. Brighton, well-run clubs usually put themselves in strong positions like this, where they they don't their players don't have easy release clauses. Um, and they don't have, they don't let contracts run down. They don't make silly mistakes. If you want the players, you can have to pay top top dollar. And I don't know what price it is that Brighton would would consider selling Caicedo. There, there have been suggestions in the last couple of days that they are looking at midfield targets. I know there was Haidara at Leipzig that they were looking at. Um, but that could just as easily be with a view to getting a replacement in the door six months before they sell Caicedo, because that's another thing good clubs do is they already have the replacement in place before they they sell the player that everyone wants. Um, 
So Caicedo, I think, yeah, Chelsea's interest is real. They they really like him. Obviously, they've got a lot of bright and brains in the in the recruitment brain trust right now. Um, so it's no surprise that Caicedo's name has fi- figured pretty prominently. But it's just not one that I, I don't know. I don't see the numbers making sense in this in this window, to be honest. Do you think the Gusto one is? you know it kind of would go under the radar and I don't think it would be a massive fee but do you think it actually be one of the the biggest pieces of business or, or trickiest to do to convince a player to come and at the risk of being Reese James understudy because that it's a bit like the Harry Kane situation right the Spurs have been dealing with for years at this point of uh, you know Reese's injury problems are concerning they really are like if they persist but to, to get someone to back up to Reese that you go there, there could be a chance that you're not playing most weeks if Reese is fit and firing. Um, that in itself is, is a tricky challenge for any club, I think, to navigate. It's easy for me to sit here and go get a right back, but to get a player who actually wants to come to the club and accept to potentially be in the role of kind of a backup goalkeeper in kind of an outfield role is is, is difficult. Yeah, it's a very difficult sell. And I, I have to put the disclaimer that Gusto is probably the one of all of the widely reported Chelsea targets, it's the one that we have the least clear handle on what's what's going on right now. Um, that will probably change in the next couple of days. But right now, we, we're not entirely sure where that negotiation stands. We know Chelsea like him. Um, I would say in, in more general terms, it's maybe easier to make that pitch to a slightly younger player Um at the kind of club that Gusto is at, at a sort of mid-tier European club, um, because you are at least offering them a bigger stage, they will get an opportunity to, to play. You'll be offering them a significant pay rise, obviously. Um, but I think with more ex- experienced options, take you know Denzel Dumfries for example. You know, one of the, widely regarded as as one of the best, one, or one of the most accomplished right wing backs in Europe right now. I'd say who's who's gettable or near gettable. Um, I would be very surprised if Chelsea could persuade him to come in and be Rhys James' alternative slash understudy because it's just, you know, players like that don't have to do that. They've got other options. They can play at a really high level and be a key piece for for a good European team. Um, So this is where the art of squad building comes in. These, These players are not always easy to find, but you need to find the right profile of player that is both happy to sit behind um, a top-tier talent, a core talent in your squad, but also good enough to to make a good to 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 do a passable enough impression of that player, or give you enough when they do play that you don't seriously miss them. And you you see, even even well-run top clubs don't get it right all the time because it's really difficult to find those players. And, and to a, to a certain extent, you're projecting based on personality as well as talent. You know, how happy are they going to be sitting on the bench? Do they have the mindset where they're just going to stay ready no matter what? Or are they going to lose focus, lose confidence? Um, so it's really difficult. You know, when you when you get someone like, when you get a Chicharito <laughs> and you hit a home run on, on like an impact player, um, it, you, you really feel it and it can really benefit a squad, but they're not always happy. Even even players like Chicharito aren't happy doing that forever. Um, so I, I find the art of squad building very fascinating and I think it's very complicated. Um, just a few more things here. Um, Mason Mount's contract, uh, 
it, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I know there was talk before reports before the Liverpool game about Liverpool's interest in him. Uh, felt quite convenient on the eve of, of, of a clash at Anfield. Uh, we've seen that sort of stuff before. But I think this is slightly concerning to me because of Mount's form this season, of his place in this Chelsea team. What does a post-Tuckle Mount look like? Um, and I think some of the concerns that Chelsea fans are having around his development as I mean, if you want to be harsh, says it feels like it's stalled this season rather than has kept going. I mean, what's your gauge on, on that contract situation, but I guess also on Mount's development at Chelsea, which was going so quickly up for, for recent years? Yeah, I think in terms of the contract, um, I mean, it was convenient that Liverpool's interest would be you know, reported again in the in the days leading up to the game, but Liverpool's interest is real. Um and I don't think they're the only club that are interested in Mount, but they are the name that we've heard probably more than any other. And it, it makes sense because I think if you're looking at the next one to two years, Liverpool need to significantly refresh their midfield. Um and I think there is there is some jeopardy to this Mount contract situation. Until it's done, it's not done. Um and I think if if you're Mount, um, from his perspective, you can point to the last three years and say, I've been one of the most consistent performers in the squad. Um, I'm part of the identity, really, of, of modern Chelsea. You'd say with, with Rhys James, player of the year, back-to-back years. Um, and so I deserve to be valued as as one of the best players in the squad. You know, I, uh, But on the other hand, um, if you're if you're Bowley Clear Lake, you're doing a lot of spending right now. You're handing out a lot of big contracts. You're also trying, in the long term, to bring the wage bill down a bit and a bit more under control. Um, and there's no denying it, Mount isn't playing anywhere near his best football right now, for whatever reason. Um, it, this this dip in form has not come at a great time for him during these during these contract talks. And I think when you're looking at his role in the new Chelsea, I mean, to a certain extent, it could be anything because Potter's Chelsea hasn't really taken shape yet. With, you know, that, that, that process is still ongoing. My, my view of Mount, and I think if you asked Mount himself, he would say his best role is as a number eight. Um, maybe, you know, becoming a number 10 in certain situations of the game a very forward-thinking number eight. And when he's in that role, I think the number of goals that he gets from midfield, the number of assists is fine. When you're expecting him to be the primary creator in a team, um, then you probably need more in terms of final third creation than what he gives you. But I think that's that's partly the fact that he's he's a bit miscast in that role. Um, so, it's yeah, we're at an interesting moment in the Mason Mount journey at Chelsea, I think. Um, it. Last season was, you can make a credible claim that it was the best individual season of his career, that he made a, a meaningful step forward. Um, development is, is never linear. So it's always possible for young players to, to go forward and then go back a bit or plateau for a little bit. doesn't mean they're not going to eventually hit their ceiling. I also think you can make the argument that Mason Mount has played too much football for his own good in the last two, three years. I mean, that's been a problem for Chelsea as a whole. They've played a, a ridiculous, crazy, draining schedule over the last two and a half, three years, ever since the COVID restart, really. Um, 
as have Liverpool. And I think you can see that in the injury crises that both clubs suffered this year. Um, Mount has not been injured very much, but in some ways, maybe that's worked against him because sometimes injuries can give your body a forced rest and and stop you dropping off physically. Um, so that, that could be part of it as well. But I can't really... There are always, you know, there, there are always things going on with players that you, you don't necessarily know about and you can't look into their minds when they're not playing well. And and nothing happens in isolation either. It's it's hard to play well in a struggling team. I don't think you could point to many Chelsea players that are at their best level right now. Um, but we, we are certainly at an interesting point um, with Mount at Chelsea when you consider where the, the contract situation is. The final two things is uh, more general questions around Graham Potter. Um, you know, I think for him, it was obviously such a brutal introduction to life at Chelsea, I think for a variety of reasons. And I know you've covered this, I think, really well, not only on the Athletic like written articles, but l- l- listening to straight out of Cobham. I remember listening to your review of the very first Salzburg game, which I found kind of interesting to me because um there was a lot of frustration after that game and he was one game in and you know the first thing I'd ask you about Graham Potter is is do you think that he's kind of faced struggles and kind of a a wave of negativity that is unique to him because of the year that was 2022 for Chelsea fans yeah I think that's been a big part of it and particularly replacing Tuchel you know when it's really really hard to replace a hugely popular coach that a lot of the fans felt was unfairly dealt with or harshly dealt with. And ironically, Tuchel avoided this similar problem because when Tuchel replaced Lampard, he had what turned out to be an incredible blessing for him, which is that there were no fans in stadiums. And the thing that I think a lot of people don't think about, but it's it's worth thinking about, is how different things could have been for him in those early weeks because the atmosphere among the, particularly the match-going fans um, after Lampard sacking was pretty much as toxic as I've known it in terms of their frustrations with the direction of the club and the decision. And that would have been something that Tuchel would have had to deal with. And maybe he would have dealt with it. He was a really charismatic guy who was very politically savvy, I think, in the way that he presented himself publicly. Maybe he would have been able to navigate that. But at the same time, a lot of those performances in the early weeks were pretty dull. Um, and a lot of the football in Tuchel's tenure as a whole was pretty dull because it was, it, at its best, it was built on making Chelsea an elite defensive pressing unit, not not some you know, crowd-pleasing team on the ball. Um so I think Tuchel managed to avoid that. Potter has not had that luxury. You know, he replaced a Champions League winner, um, plunged into a, a crazy sprint of games leading into a World Cup, and a fan base that not only um, not only was still mourning, and I think some of them are still grieving Tuchel even now, but really weren't sure about him because. He, ha- he he doesn't have the resume for this job in, in traditional Chelsea terms. You know, he did, he's not a traditional choice for a Chelsea head coach. Um, and then when you add to that the fact that he, you know, he doesn't have Frank Lampard's pre-existing connection with the fan base or status at the club. And he's not an outwardly charismatic guy. You know, I, 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 I've, I've been in a room with Potter a few times now and he's a very normal, nice guy. 
he's the kind of guy that I think if you talk to, you can't help but want him to succeed. I think because he's a, he, you want nice pe- you want good people to succeed, and he comes across as a genuinely quite nice, normal guy. But this is not a profession that rewards nice, normal guys. Usually, <laughs> you have to be a bit of a um, a bit nasty, but also a bit of a, a kind of megalomaniac psychopath, even at times, um, a, a real sort of outsized personality. And that's the kind of coach that Chelsea as a club have been used to, I think, and some of the coaches that Chelsea fans have bonded with most easily. Um, so Potter's had all that to deal with. And I think he's had to try and grow into this job in any number of ways, on the pitch, off the pitch, um, in terms of managing players in terms of you know setting up teams when you are a massive club that everyone else is setting up everyone else is setting up as if you're a massive team um very different to Brighton and then of course just talking like a Chelsea coach in in press conferences I think it's all been a, a pretty steep learning curve for Graham Potter and that doesn't mean he can't do it but it, it means it was never going to happen overnight and and when you add the the latent frustration that was there when he when he came in, um, I don't think it's made things any easier. And I'm not not blaming fans for that because the way they feel is the way they feel, and I, I get that. Um, but it's just I think it's made that it's made the whole situation even more complicated. Yeah, there's so I I did like a half an hour, forty five minute podcast at the end of 2022, trying to wrap it up and kind of just you comprehend all the things that happened in that year and like. For Chelsea fans, used to chaos, used to upheaval, used to change and used to kind of the short-term boom and bust, high, extreme highs, extreme lows in, in, in certain ways emotionally. But that year was just so exhausting. And unfortunately, I think it, there's just so many things that I think he's had to, to deal with. So hopefully he can rectify them. I mean, I, I'm excited to see the team now with the new players. And I'm also excited to see the team with some of the injured players returning and you know, I, I hope for Potter's sake he can get a big win under his belt. He hasn't had that yet. You know, Liverpool would have been that. And I think that if he was to win one of the supposed big, ga- big games, if we go away to Spurs in a couple of weeks' time and win that, I think a lot of supporters, I think, would just naturally get on board with him a lot more because that's, whether we like it or not, whether it's only, you know, three points against Spurs is the same as three points against Southampton, but it's it means a lot more for obvious reasons. So I, hopefully he can do that. The, the final thing to ask is about Todd Bowley and we've kind of discussed a lot about sort of the transfer, whether there's a strategy or not. Um, myself, I was, you know, very optimistic about, you know, his consortium taking over, taking over. I remember writing a piece March last year, kind of thinking that he was the best of the bidders because it was a very public process and seeing how it's all unfolded. It has been chaotic. I think it's been a steep learning curve for these new owners. Um, but do you think a lot of the outside scrutiny, even scrutiny of some of Chelsea fans themselves towards there's kind of like no plan whatsoever and these are just kind of like Americans who've come in and don't understand what they're doing at all? I mean, I, I think some of it's been disrespectful and some of it has been overblown, um, at least in my opinion. I don't know if it, what your kind of gauge on that situation has been sort of covering it. Quite a bit of the conversation has been based on a fundamental misconception of... Chelsea's new owners and and I understand kind of why it happened because from the very first moment that they they went public with their interest for Chelsea Todd Bowley was the face of this bid and he has been the face of the ownership group 
ever since. And, and of course, he appoints himself interim sporting director. Like, there's, I think there's definitely an element of Oli that he has, he has liked the profile. Um, he certainly, he, he's not shied away from putting himself front and centre publicly. But the misconception that I've sensed some in some uh, quarters, particularly when I think Tuchel was sacked, is that this guy is is kind of a continuation of Abramovich? That he's like this emotional, this emo, this emotional like all powerful single figure who's just making decisions on a whim and throwing money around. It, it it's just not the reality. I I don't know what Todd Bowley's stake is in Chelsea, but I think it's quite small. You can't lose sight of Clear Lake Capital and Bedadeg Bali in this whole situation. This is a joint governance arrangement. But Clear Lake Capital owns 62% of Chelsea. So they've chosen to partner with Todd Bowley because of their opinion of his operational experience in, in the sports space, you know, with the Dodgers and everything. Um, but he can't make decisions on his own and he doesn't make decisions on his own. He can't he, he can't sack Tuchel because he decides he doesn't like him and he can't sign a he can't sign a player for 100 million just because he wants to. Everything is a conversation. Everything is collaborative. Um, and so I, I think that's been a fundamental misconception. Is it, it's When you're talking about Chelsea's owners, I understand why you talk about Todd Bowley, but he's not the only voice. And he's not even necessarily the most powerful voice. Um, so it, it's worth bearing that in mind. The other part of this as well is that I think people are still hung up on... And again, it's understandable given... You know, even guys that, that covered the club like me, we did not expect this level of investment in these first two windows. It has been absolutely crazy in terms of what what's happened in the transfer market. Um, and people are just looking at this as, oh, same old Chelsea, you know, outspending everyone, looking to buy success. And while I, on a surface level, I understand why you could reach that conclusion. This is a very different ownership group that want to run the club in a very different way. And they're from a very different background. You know, Bowley and Egg Barley are not oligarchs. They're US private equity guys. They do not just throw money away and with, with no view to profit or business sense. That's not why they bought Chelsea. They haven't bought Chelsea with their own money. They bought Chelsea with, with private equity money. Um, and that means that they're there has to be a return on this, either with Chelsea being profitable or Chelsea growing in value as a result of being successful on the pitch and successful commercially and everything. So if they're spending now, it's because they're hoping to spend less later, not because they're looking at spending £250 million in every window from now until eternity. That is not the way capitalism works. <laughs> so I, I think people need to calm down a little bit. I understand why looking at what's happened in these first two windows people are getting a bit hysterical and I, I must admit it surprised me how much they've spent so early but that I think I would advise anyone who wants to understand a little bit more about what's going on to read Swiss Ramble's piece um, on Chelsea and, and financial fair play that he wrote I think this week no one does financial analysis better than him and it, it seems very clear to me that Chelsea are essentially front-loading their spending, the spending that they that normal clubs would do over two, three years, um, or you know, four or five windows. They are front-loading this now 
partly because the conditions are right to do so with financial fair play and the, the, the allowances that UEFA have made and so on, um, in the hope that they that this level of investment will not be needed later. That's why they're signing most of these players under 23 to really long contracts because they want these guys to be long-term assets on the pitch and off the pitch. Um, and so you can question the strategy, certainly in lots of ways, and you can question the wisdom of giving out seven, eight-year contracts. It's not something other clubs have really done to this level before, um, and it's definitely risky. But there is a strategy, at least in their eyes, of what they're, what they're doing. Whether it will work or not is another question, but they're, they're not just mindlessly throwing, throwing money around. I think the shame of it is that that Gary Neville quote back in, I want to say August, um, has really stuck the he's just playing football manager. And like, I don't know Gary Neville personally. I like listening to him speak about football, but it, it felt to me like the classic kind of pundit asked to give a, a hot opinion about a big club. And he hadn't really focused that much on probably what Chelsea were doing over the summer and just saw all these players that we were signing and just went football manager. And, and that's kind of the way it stuck. But I agree with you. It, I, I could absolutely understand as a fan, you'd be concerned about some of the the feeling of, of twisting and turning. And, and But as well, it's, it's, and I think you've brought this up before, is that they are learning as well. You know, this is Bowley and Bali going into an environment that is different. And I, I think when Bowley was speaking in, in uh, New York in September, another thing that got blown out of proportion when he just gave the mere suggestion of an all-star game, but that wasn't the interesting part of that 30-minute discussion for me. That When he started speaking about the negotiations in the market and how financially it's interesting in terms of the... I, I mean, we're getting into boring stuff here, but like the... I think it was in terms of it, they want to be paid in pounds or they want to be paid in dollars and euros and kind of like how different that was for him than his American market and and yeah it's going to be a it's going to be a challenging time and I think there's going to be ups and downs but I, the idea he's just sat there each night on Football Manager or FIFA and just is kind of just going I want that one and Chelsea just splashed eighty million as as I think you've just detailed is is. Is obviously not true, and it's 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 a, a simplification. But that's unfortunately, I think, a, a lot of the analysis that goes on. I think there has to be a, and there will be in time. I think um, a dividing line drawn between what happened last summer and what's happened this window and every window that will follow. Because last sun last summer was a unique unique circumstance. They bought the club in June, basically a matter of weeks before. The transfer window opened. They very quickly decided they couldn't move forward with the existing senior hierarchy of the club. That they just didn't see eye to eye on on the direction. Um, and once you do that, they committed themselves to navigating the European football transfer market with no recruitment structure in place. They they were learning on the job, meeting these agents who obviously all think that they can get. They they all just see dollar signs when they get news that Todd Bowley wants to meet them or Badele Bali wants to meet them and have a chat. Um, and so I think there were there were a lot of clubs that, that thought they could see Chelsea coming last summer. And the way Chelsea recruited last summer is not the way they're recruiting in this window and it's not the way they'll recruit from now on because they didn't have Christopher Vivell, Lawrence Stewart, um, you know, uh, Paul Winstanley, any of these other recruitment guys that they've hired 
in the months between last summer and, and, and this January. And a couple of these guys, I mean, Stuart and Joe Shields haven't even started yet. So that, that structure is still taking shape. But what we're, what we're seeing in this window, I think, is already a bit more coherent in terms of the way Chelsea are going to operate going forward. They are going for a very defined profile of player. A player, the players under 23 that have, that have flashed elite potential to varying degrees um, that can be signed to long contracts and be part of the club for a long time. And, and within that, you know, they're signing teenagers that are maybe long-term development projects and guys between 20 and 23 who can, who can contribute straight away. But they're not signing any... I don't think we'll see many more Abamyangs or Kulabalis, for example. You know, I think they, they, were, they were signings that were felt to be necessary at the time. We all know about the Rudiger Christensen situation and the, the unique pressures that exerted in that window. I just think there were a load of conditions last summer that won't be repeated again. And this window gives a better indication of the way Bowley and Clear Lake want to run the club. And future windows will will give an even better indication because, it, as I said, I don't expect them to spend this much every window forever. When also they had a head coach, they did, you know, break down in communication who was very much about the here and now and very much about players who we could trust right now. And, you know, as you said, it was it was so unique. And like, I think it would have been a very different situation in the summer if they'd taken over, say, in January or they'd taken over in February and there was a, a bit of a runway to that summer. There was, as you explained, there was no runway. You literally, we had to get into the business of, of the transfer window. And you, Chelsea, any criticism of Chelsea's transfer business in the summer for me is like Chelsea just couldn't sit still and do nothing. Like you couldn't look at that squad and go, well, we'll just wait. You know, I think that there were clear especially for Tuchel, who's a demanding coach at the best of times, I'm sure would have been saying, I need this, I need that, especially after losing a massive figure like Rudiger. You know, of course he would have wanted someone to come in. So yeah, it, it was hopefully, as you said, we're, we're going to see more consistency in the, in the coming window. So thank you so much, Liam, for joining me. Uh, as I say, I wish you a bit of luck ahead of the transfer deadline day. Chelsea may do a bit of a madness. Uh, I hope for your sake it's a little bit of a, a calm one, uh, but we never know. We may have an Edson Alvarez part two or a, hopefully something exciting like an uh, an um enzo fernandez or something like that but we will see i feel a little bit like matt davis adams at the end of uh, straight out of cobham here but i give you a chance to promote the work that's coming out on on the athletic regarding chelsea sure so i mean in addition to trying to keep up with what chelsea are doing in the transfer market we're also working on a bigger piece um kind of the story of chelsea's january window uh, should be plenty of t- plenty to talk about. I think me and Simon and a few others are all feeding into that one. Um, and next week we're also hoping to run a piece on what the rest of the football world makes of Chelsea spending right now. Trying to get a few opinions, even if off the record, from people in the football world who have been looking at Chelsea from afar. Yeah, I wonder if there'll be uh, many smiles from the Arsenal camp. Uh, I'm sure they're not as happy as, as some others who could speak about Chelsea, but definitely go and check out Liam's work. Link in the description box below. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to tune into this video. Make sure to hit that subscribe button, notification bell. If you're listening on the podcast, please give us a positive rate and review. It really does help out. And I will see you again very soon. All the best.